Hey guys, what's up? It is week 288, and before we start this off, I want to let you guys know the uh, 80s Terror and a Track, Volume 2 or Episode 2, should be live. Um, it's Return of the Living Dead, uh, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, I think I improved on the lighting. Hopefully the video isn't improved from the last one. Check it out. It's kind of a new video series I'll be doing on YouTube, also on Anchor. But let's hop right into the reviews. And first up is from Synapse Film films and this one was uh um, announced a while back and i I was really excited to check it out because it's kind of like one of the heavy hitters in the bigfoot subgenre made 1976 after you know stuff like bigfoot from 1970 and the legend of boggy creek 72 and this is creature from black lake now if you look at the people up here you got jackie lamb and dub taylor which excites me um dub taylor was a peck and paul regular a great character actor if you've seen him you'd recognize him right away he's in stuff like the wild bunch the getaway uh, Major Dundee, and also Jack Elam is also no stranger to character acting. He's in a bunch of westerns. He pops up in Handy Colder. He's also in the Peckinpah movie Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. There's also a couple other familiar faces in here. This one's got a really great southern charm. So essentially this follows two guys from Chicago that uh, are college boys and they're really interested in this sort of like myth, myth, myth they hear that's down south. So they go down and travel down there to try to check it out and do some research on a Sasquatch Bigfoot, Yeti, whatever you want to call him. So right away they kind of run into some, you know, some static with the sheriff who um, I actually really like his portrayal in this. So often you watch these kind of southern movies where the sheriff is just, uh, you know, a corrupt awful piece of shit lawman, which is fine. You know, I dig that too, but it, it sometimes it gets a little old. I mean, you watch stuff like White Lightning with Burt Reynolds and you got some great performances of, you know, crooked sheriffs. It's just very much a stereotype, right? The Southern cop is the crooked cop and yada, yada, yada. Nowadays, it probably will play really good for a lot of people, honestly. But back then, you know, I mean, when I was growing up in the 90s and early days, whatever, 80s and 90s, I just saw it so much it got old. So that this sheriff in this one is actually halfway decent person was actually kind of uh, refreshing in these 70s kind of exploitation kind of movies. You always get the impression that a lot of the people that make them hate the South. This one doesn't have that. Creature from Black Lake has kind of this element of a real regional quality that really kind of helps the movie along. And then, like I said, the addition of the couple character actors in here. There's other familiar faces, too. One of the leads is actually uh, Hugo Firefly from uh, House of Thousand Corpses. He's in a bunch of other films as well. But the addition of the character actors and Jack Elam and Dub Taylor really put this one over the bar of, of average for me, and I really enjoyed it. So the two main characters here, it's kind of like a buddy movie, really. Uh, it's a buddy kind of uh, road movie for a lot of it. They're traveling, they're running across people and meeting all these different people and meeting this small town that has this charm. And of course, they're looking for the Sasquatch. They're asking questions about it. And a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but every once in a while, they'll, they'll come across someone that does. And Dub Taylor has a wonderful scene where he's really uh, you know, cranky and crotchy, doesn't want to talk about it. Then he mentions there's a reward and his eyes light up and it, it's very similar to a scene that would be used in like Django Unchained with, um, geez, with Don Johnson when he's like, oh, you said money? and he, he kind of just charms up, puts a southern charm on, and Dub Taylor comes to life there. But there's these really, really good stories, kind of like spooky kind of Sasquatch stories of people just telling the story. And when it comes to, like, um, you know, cryptids or ghosts or aliens, when somebody's rehashing the story, they always have these flashbacks. And these are really done, I think, well, and they're actually pretty scary. Um, the cinematography is done by Dean Cundy. You can't go wrong with Dean Cundy. This is before, you know, he was doing a lot of the Carpenter work. So, you know, he's doing stuff for, like, Graydon Clark and Satan's Cheerleaders and then later he do Without Warning in 80. That's after Carpenter 
little bit, but still, you know, Graydon Clark. I um, mean, uh, Dean Cundy is a, is a world uh, top-notch cinematographer. He's, this is his early roots in 76, but it's still very well done. There's actually an interview with him on here. He talks a little bit about the Bigfoot makeup and everything, helping with that, which is cool. So, like I said, it's, it's really kind of a buddy movie. There's a lot of kind of, you know, hijinks and silliness, but at the end, it gets pretty intense. And uh, Jackie Lamb is really good in it, really kind of crazy. The Sheriff's great in it. Dub Taylor's great in it. The two leads are solid. I enjoyed them. And there's one point when it becomes really dangerous for them. And I was like, is this movie going to have a real dark turn? And I almost thought it did. Um, but yeah, I won't tell you if it does or not. Uh, but, it, you know, it gets a little a little hairy in there. Uh, pun intended. But yeah, I thought the the Sasquatch looked fairly solid. Um, I thought the, the, the visual, you know, like how it, how it was remastered, everything was, was fantastic, sounded great. Um, and I enjoy this kind of stuff. You know, I enjoy these regional horror films. And, and, you know, there's not that many great Bigfoot movies to me. I know people are like, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I do like Night of the Demon from 1980, but that's just insane. That's a super goofy movie. I've never actually watched Legend of Boggy Creek. Bigfoot from 1970 with John Carradine and one of the Mitchums, not too much of a good movie to be, to be honest. And you got stuff like Exist with people really joy. I'm not too huge of a fan of it and stuff like that. But this one I really enjoyed. I dug this quite a bit. And again, you know, I'm a character actor, you know, uh, you know, kind of um, basically anything character actor in the movies, I love it. But as far as the special features are concerned, we have an audio commentary with filmmaker Michael Gingold and film historian Chris uh, Palagi. Uh, pa- Paglagi, sorry about that. But Michael Gingold used to be the editor on Fangoria, and he makes shorts and movies and all that kind of stuff, and he's an author. Swamp Stories, all new featurette with director of cinematography Dean Cunney, and that's great. We got the original trailer, newly translated subtitles. So yeah, this is a nice release. Um, not bare bones, but not too much on there, but you don't need the bells and whistles for Creature from Black Lake. It kind of speaks for itself. Nice to finally have this. This is a movie I've been waiting to see on Blu-ray for a long time, and now, you know, Synapse delivers. And when they deliver, they always do a great job. It's worth the wait. So, Creature from Black Lake. I enjoy it. 1976. Okay, the next one up is from 88 Films, and this is by, um, you know... Euro crime, Polizia Tetsi kind of big mafia guy, um, Fernando De Leo. Now, this isn't in the prime of his career. This is 1977, but I still think this is an excellent film. It has uh, Claudio Casanelli, I believe is his name. This guy pops up in a slew of Sergio Martino movies, if you guys aren't familiar. It also has Martin Balsam in it. Yeah, so, and I can't think of the character actor's name in here. Oh, I should mention Barbara Boucher, and it also has Olga Cartolas from Zombie. Barbara Boucher's in a bunch of movies. She's in, um, geez, she's in Don't Torture a Duckling, which I'll be talking about later. Um, let me find the actor's name. Is he not listed on the back? Oh, Pierre Pablo Caponi. And this guy is in a slew of movies. I watch, he was in a couple of 1970 movies I watched from Italy. He's just in a lot of films, and I, I want to directly mention him in depth because his character in this is such a fucking prick. Um, but Claudio Casanelli and Martin Balsam really do stand out they always do so essentially what we have here is kind of a a euro revenge film and it's not typical you know a lot of these ones you have like a a police officer going on you know a vigilante or you have you know i guess it is kind of typical in certain ways but it doesn't play as action paced or or fast paced as a lot of the other ones that i've seen it's it's it does have these downtimes and this character development and this kind of wondering and and like planning and all that stuff so Claudio Casanelli, in the very beginning, him and his buddy are are basically called to, you know, break out a safe and rob it and everything, and the cops are there right away. So they've been set up, um, Claudio gets away, and his buddy hurts his leg. I mean, Claudio gets caught and his buddy gets away but hurts his leg. He serves some time in jail, in prison, and when he gets out, he has revenge on his mind. 
Almost immediately on the way home, his transport vehicle, the bus, is attacked by some thugs, but he's not going to stand for that because he thinks there's more to it. He thinks that Martin Balsam, the mob boss, is out to get him. So tragedy strikes and something upsets him even further, and this kind of puts him in a tailspin of revenge. That's all he cares about. He goes to his old friend with the bad leg and kind of starts talking to him, and they start to get together, and they start plotting this elaborate revenge. Now, Martin Balsam, at first, you know, wants to make peace and wants to make everything okay. Okay, but his right-hand man in uh, in Pierre, um, geez, I can't think of the guy's name, is just a monster. He is such an asshole. He walks around with these two goons and harasses uh, Casanelli the entire film until you know we have some craziness and uh, the, and some action and some violence and some revenge. But the very ending of this movie is the kicker. It really is the kicker. I was very impressed with how it unfolded. I thought that the impact that it had was very strong, an emotional impact and. It makes you kind of like both sides to a certain extent in a certain way without spoiling too much. So the music, right away I recognized it. It was used later in Hell of the Living Dead. It's the only piece is not by Goblin. And this little score here is used in a couple movies. Italians are very infamous for reusing scores. Hence, you can you hear the score right away, or if you've ever seen Tentacles, that score pops up in a handful of films. Um, it looks great. It sounds great. This is a really entertaining film um, with an actor that died way before his time. If anybody doesn't know, uh, I believe he died in a helicopter crash on the set of Hands of Steel, the Sergio Martino movie. Not the best movie to be part of the die. I, I know movies worth dying for, but hell, Hands of Steel, it's even a little bit more kind of like that. That's even worse. I mean, that, 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 that's that's really tasteless cessation to said that. But as far as the special features are concerned, we have a limited edition slipcase with art by James Neal, which I enjoy. Booklet notes by Rachel Nisbet, friend uh, Cesco uh, Massiani, and Andrew Graves. Oh, they're, they're also on the uh, notes. 4K restoration. Um, then we have... Um, we have in English and Italian audio commentary with Italian cinema expert Troy Haworth, who's one of the best. I love Troy Haworth. Journey of Love, Discovering Fernando De Leo, feature-length documentary. That's awesome. Blood and De Leo, a portrait of Luke Miranda, uh, by Luke Miranda, who's a famous actor. He's in a bunch of uh, you know Euro crime films. I believe he's a French actor, but he pops up in a bunch of stuff. You would recognize him. He's in Hotel Fear, which Mondo just recently put out. Italian opening, intermission by closing credits. And if you're not familiar with Fernando De Leo's films, he did a slew of them. Rare Old Pictures put out a couple box sets. He's also did Madness from 1980 and To Be 20, which Art Editor mentioned in his you know secret top 10. So the director is very prolific. He's one of the most respected when it comes to Euro crime films for sure, if not the most respected. In fact, he kind of stuck to that genre of Euro crime and thrillers and all this kind of stuff. And this is a really solid film. I can't see anybody that digs these not enjoying this one. Now, Troy Howard does mention, you know, he wasn't at the top of his game when he made this, but I believe he still enjoys the film quite a bit. That's Blood and Diamonds, a great name. And of course, there's robberies and heist and all this kind of stuff and double crossing. Really good film. I would recommend checking this out. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Martin, Martin Bolsom's always a pleasure to see, you know, from um, 12 Angry Men and Kate Fee and a million other movies. He's in everything. Death Wish 3 for you guys that like him sleazy and cheesy. There we go. Okay, the next up is from 101 Films, and this is the second release by 101 Films. They're coming in strong. The first being The Last Broadcast, which is an excellent found footage movie. The next being kind of another kind of found footage style film in Ghost Watch. This is the deluxe edition. Now, Ghost Watch is a movie from 1992. It was on the BBC, and the story is that it played on Halloween, and a lot of people got terrified because they thought it was real. Now, 
Uh, in America, they kind of did a film called WNUF Halloween Special in 2015 that is very similar to this, and I can see a lot in WNUF from Ghostwatch. Now, I never initially saw Ghostwatch. I did not see it when it came out. I'm not British, and I did not see it forever. It was kind of a blind spot for me. I'd always heard good things. I always was counting on, you know, hopefully getting a nice release in the States, and finally we have it here, and it couldn't be much nicer. We have a script in here. We have lobby cards. We have a booklet. We have the, the Blu-ray. Um, yeah, it's just kind of amazing. It is region locked, they say, on here region a but okay so ghost watch um now it's gonna be hard to go about it because i don't have you know british news but i did grow up in the 90s so being like six or seven in 1992 i kind of understood how the news worked and how they have these kind of people on there like dan rather or something like that so they actually hired a lot of people that would be on the news at the time so when you switch this on around halloween you would be actually seeing people that you're familiar with so it made perfect sense for people to kind of let their guard down and kind of watch this weird kind of this thing where there's people entering you know this supposedly haunted house where this little girl's being attack and the case that they're actually studying here is similar to the infield uh, incident i believe it's what it's called i think they did that in conjuring 2 it's supposed to be a true story a true haunting in britain um you can look it up in details and everything depending if you kind of believe that kind of stuff but so so that that's kind of what i feel like some of the basis is from this so essentially what we have here is we have like people in the studio like kind of watching them wander around this place and interview the young girls and everything and just wait for something kind of spooky to happen and it all takes place on Halloween. And, and the thing is, the movie starts off very slow. It sets up, you know, the backstory of the hauntings. And then uh, as it progresses, we start to get more in depth with this. We start to hear creepy things. And, and we have all these experts come on dismissing the situation. And we have someone who's kind of like putting it forward as this would possibly still be real. While we have our main host who has the perfect demeanor for this kind of thing. If anybody's ever seen a host, uh, yeah, a newscaster from the 90s or anything. It's just kind of dead on, you know, on the level. Just very, uh, you know. I guess the same generic accent in the British style. But so what goes on is by the end, you, you kind of let your guard down. You And I could see people actually buying into this. And, and the last 20 minutes or so kind of pick up and you have a lot of creepy things, a lot of stuff that was planted. The seeds finally come, you know, they, they sprout and we see all this kind of creepy shit. Now, it's not overly explicit or anything like that. It's very subtle, even in its insanity towards the end. It's not as wild. Um, but you could see maybe seeing it as the real live news station doing a hoax or something like that. But anyways, I guess it just terrified an audience, and it was kind of way ahead of its time. It did something completely unique. Now, when listening to like the uh, the featurette, which is like feature like 30, 40 minutes, I think it's 48 minutes or so, are talking to all the people that were involved with the film. They mentioned how it got made, and it was supposed to be like a four-part series, and they were like, can you break it down in one? He's like, I don't think so, but we can do that last episode, and we can make it live. We can do this special thing with it. Now, that, that's really unique and different to have this live broadcast. Obviously, people will compare it to, you know, Orson Welles, you know, doing the uh, War of the Worlds on the radio and people believing it's real. It's, it's happened a couple times in history where people see something that is fake and they buy into it, you know. Uh, it happens all the time now. But, uh, so, as far as the special features are concerned, we have a slew. Do you believe in ghosts? The 30th anniversary documentary on the Ghost Watch phenomenon. Commentary of film historians Shelley McDurdle and St uh, Stella Gaynor. And that's good because they actually were alive when this came on and they watched it live, I believe. Or at least one of them did. Um, limited edition booklet includes extrasensory uh, perception management by Sarah Appleton. Ghostwatch, as it happened, by Tim Murray and short story 3110 by Ghostwatch writer Stephen Volk. Reproduced script. A noted, 
and uh, that word is going to drive me crazy. I noted, uh, and I, I'm always going to say it wrong, um, by director Leslie Manning. Set of six art cards. So very cool. And then archive extras, commentary of Stephen Volk, producer Ruth Bumgarden, and director Leslie Manning. Shooting reality by Leslie Manning. So we got a slew of stuff here. Um, interesting movie for sure. You kind of have to see it one, for sure at least once. And if you enjoy it, I mean, you're not going to beat this edition. Nice hard box, all that kind of stuff. Um, impressed with 101's output so far. Let's keep it coming in the U.S. We got two great releases. Um, last broadcast I'd highly recommend if you've not seen it I think it's an excellent film uh, yeah two movies that kind of predate the Blair Witch or coincide with the Blair Witch with the uh, last broadcast that are similar and have a lot of similarities kind of cool Okay, the next one's going to be kind of brief, and that's just what rewatches, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about a little bit. So, um, is this 1986, if I'm not making it? 1987, 1996. And this is Guyver, Out of Control. This is an anime I had for years, uh, a tape. I watched it actually online and everything like that, but I still do have this tape here of Guyver, Out of Control. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this was the first kind of produced off the manga kind of uh, OVAs that was made. You know, they made a series after this. They made a series in the early 90s that lasted 12 episodes. They made a live-action movie in 91. One um, with you know Mark Hamill and you know David Gale, directed by um, Stephen um, Yang. And then they made a sequel to that, Dark Hero in 94, and then they kind of made another series of 26 episodes um, in the early 2000s. Now, I'm very familiar with the Guyver as far as, like, produced films and cartoons and stuff like that are. I, I've not actually read the manga or anything like that, but as far as this one, this is, like, the first one. And this is probably the first one that I remember picking up. I thought it was the original series, and I didn't know it was this 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 kind of OVA that's just uh, kind of like an hour long or so. Essentially, what we have here is just the two first episodes of the TV show uh, to- retold in a different way. It's in Japanese with English subtitles. But Sho Fukumachi, of course, he's out and about with his girlfriend, Mizuki, uh, Mizaki, Mizuki, I believe. And they encounter the Gyra unit. The Zoonoids uh, are an evil corporation, Kronos. They're uh, tracking down a Zoonoid who stole these Gyra units, which are kind of bio-booster armor from space. Very powerful, you know, weapons. And basically, something goes wrong, and these Gyra units are spread out. And Sho Fukumachi gets one on it. Um, these zoonoids come after him and he has to protect his girlfriend and he doesn't realize that he's become the bio booster weapon. And yeah, it's basically just him discovering he's now basically a superhero. Kronos is an evil corporation that makes monsters. Um, it's very gory. Um, they even redo the, a lot of the same scenes that you'll see in the anime, you know, with the Gregel and he's stronger and just a big, they, they kind of make this guy out to be like the zoonoid, this big, huge monster guy, super strong. And then, um, the guy faces off against him after he's already established that he's a monster and, and Guyver just whoops his ass, rips him to pieces. There's a lot of arms getting ripped off. There's a lot of, you know, people getting cut in half and floating in the air. So there's some gnarly effects or some gnarly gore anime that you would expect from the 80s. Think Devil Man, you know, think that kind of stuff. Think Ninja, you know, Scroll, all that kind of stuff. It's I, I think the animation's pretty solid. I don't think it's amazing, but I think it's good. And I think this is a really cool little kind of little scene, uh, Guyver kind of, uh, you know, output. You know, I'm sure people have seen the, the, the two series and the movies, but I doubt they've seen Guyver out of control um yeah this is a weird tape it's kind of strange tape i've had it for years uh and i remember paying 10 bucks for it back in like when i was like 12 or 13 so that was kind of an expensive tape back then getting it at half.com but i'm glad i have it now i don't even know if this sucker was an originally in a clamshell or not i believe it looks like it was and it was not cut so who knows Anyways, it looks really good to me, and I'm, I'm, it's not for sale, though, so I don't know if anybody would even want to buy it. Don't know it's worth, but guy out of control, pretty cool stuff. Okay, the next up, I'm only going to talk about for a minute. So basically, um, I was just relaxing. We had a couple people over, and it was just like, let's put something on just to have. And so we put Meet the Raisins on, the 
kind of claymation weird thing that's like spoofing, you know, behind the music with the California Raisins. It had been years. I used to watch it as a kid. Me and my brother used to watch it all the time. We thought it was hilarious. It is really weird. It's like nightmare fuel. I have a tape somewhere, but we watched it online and it's on YouTube if you ever feel like you need to see it. There is a sequel, which I've never seen. Um, but yeah, all of this and I've never seen the sequel. But uh, uh, basically, uh, Meet the Raisins follows the story of four raisins who basically become music stars. They're all sorts of ridiculous antics. Everybody in the movie is a vegetable or a fruit of sorts. There's fake like commercials. There's newscasters. There's somebody doing the, you know, the basically the introduction. They all are basically parts like the carrot, what they would be like. The, the guy doing the introductions is a carrot. I mean, you see what they reflect, what they are by the vegetable or the fruit that they are. This The grapefruit was in the band and he got kicked out and he's upset about it. So he keeps mentioning he wrote that song. That's a good, that's the best gag in the movie. But it, it just all feels really uncomfortable now and weird and it feels like a bad acid trip or like the perfect hangover movie to watch um which means the actually it's not a good hangover movie it's just an uncomfortable hangover movie to watch it is a hangover in hell it's the it's meet the raisins and i know i'm like describing this as some hellscape and it's just some like kitty family friendly weird claymation thing it is just really bizarre and weird and revisiting it was not a great experience but a funny a funny experience in a, in a weird kind of way um this movie would be the worst movie to be high to so meet the raisins just watch some clips of it or watch it on youtube and just be like what in the world was not the 90s thinking or is it the 80s i can't even remember when this fucking thing was made but it's it's bizarre Okay, the next one is a 2022 movie, and this is directed by Damien Leone, I believe. Is it Leone? And uh, yeah, this is Terrifier 2. Now, I initially saw Terrifier 1, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty fun. I thought it was gory, slasher, pretty cool. Art the Clown was a very uh, cool character. I don't think I ever saw All Hallows Eve, the anthology where Art the Clown originally came from. I might have. It's been a long time. So there's a lot of hype behind Terrifier 2. Two-hour, 18-minute runtime. Everybody probably knows that by now. That's very long for a slasher. Um, it basically started off just one day in the theater did really well so they kept prolonging it the movie made over 10 million dollars or something like that on like a $250,000 budget uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the numbers here very impressive very awesome to see you know this independent gore film gore slasher make all that money you know it's very cool that it even made it to theaters anyways Art the Clown caught on I remember people watching Terrifier on Netflix and asking me if I'd saw it you know because they knew I liked horror films and I said yeah yeah and they bring that up and it was just like this guy you know he has a chance to be this kind of cultural icon and he's definitely he's, he's on his way there I, I would say he's pretty much there you know people love clown killers art the clown the gay actor who plays him um what is it uh david thornton david howard thornton it's really good He's got a lot of charisma. He's got a lot of movements and the idea, you know, people like the clowns. So essentially, you know, Terrifier 1 didn't have much story. It was just a brutal kind of good, well-done slasher film. So part two, he kind of elaborates on that story. Like I said, a two-hour and 18-minute runtime. And they build a lot of mythology about Art the Clown. A lot of it to me was kind of confusing, kind of weird, kind of unique, though. At the same time, I was interested. I was invested. So our main characters are essentially a family of three. A father recently had died. So you got that trauma aspect that's in so many movies here. A lot of people do dealing with something getting over it's almost in all horror films right so essentially you have a brother a sister and a mom and the sister you know she's going through her troubles and you know she starts to have nightmares and strange things and everything just kind of gets really bizarre when when art the clown starts coming around and people start getting murdered and they start to have like visions or start to find things that piece their father directly tied in with the art the clown it's very strange um the real highlights of this movie are you know it's well made it's well shot art the clown is fantastic but the gore effects are next level like the 
next level gore effects in this are so surprising. There's a couple scenes in here that took me back where I was like, I can't believe this played in theaters. I can't believe this has this much money behind it. I can't believe some of these effects. One of the murders in particular, one in a bedroom, it's got to be one of the most brutal slashing murders I've ever seen. It just goes on forever. It, it hits the point where it crosses like over the top, but it's still brutal and horrible and you know the way that a lot of people will dig it. Like There's a lot of great kills in here. Now, the only problem I do have on it is I'd like a rewatch before the year's out because there is like a lot of this mythology that could be a little confusing for me, a little little iffy, and I just need to kind of dive in and make sure I can see exactly where it went. I don't have all the answers. I don't think they give you all the answers, but I'm missing more answers than everyone else, I think. Maybe I zoned out for the long run time or I just didn't pick up on everything. But like I said, you know, it's a well-done slasher film. It takes itself fairly serious, although some things get over the top. The killer is scary. The main character, the final girl, she's good. She's solid. Um, there's just great effects and you know I was very impressed with a lot of it and I'm super happy that a movie like this got to play in theaters it got to make a lot of money and it's making a splash because that changes the landscape of things for the better for us horror fans you know I do love that we get the A24 movies like Hereditary in theaters I love that I love seeing those Uh, but now I'm kind of digging that we're getting stuff like Terrifier 2 in the theaters man it's a whole new world right Um, partially because COVID you know putting low budget movies in the theater just became a little bit more you know plausible because the the big ones aren't getting made and stuff like the wretched was going to play in the theaters and do well or and stuff like that that's very cool so um yeah terrifier 2 check it out it's on screen box it's like you can get a seven day free trial or you can pay like five dollars whatever you want to do worth it for terrifier 2 i'm going to keep it around just so i can watch it again before the year's out runtime a little long but that's just me you know how i am um but yeah it, it delivers on the goods it no false advertising on terrifier 2 now i'm not talking to people that watch august underground mortem for you know to relax and go to bed too now they might think that it was a little overhyped but that's just you know that's pretty extreme Okay, we have a one for Italian Horror Month. We're covering this, and I've covered this already on here for for Lucio Fulci Volume 3, and this is from 1972, and I'm only going to talk briefly about it because I'm talking about it on the podcast. We already recorded it, and I already covered this on the channel. This is Don't Torture a Duckling. Like I said, I believe to be Fulci's finest film. Um, it's a giallo, one of uh, a few he did. Uh, you know, he did Perversion Story, then Don't Torture, uh, then Lizard and a Woman's Skin, then Don't Torture a Duckling, and so like you know, Fulci just always got lumped in with the Gormeister, the the Godfather of Gore one of the godfathers of gore um so so people like a lot of people probably don't know that he had a good uh, output of films beforehand and some really strong giallos um so don't torture a duckling i think is a masterpiece it's a rule giallo it takes place in italy it talks about superstition and religion and mob mentality and it does this you know from an insider point of view which is brilliant um the cast is amazing tomas milan barbara boucher mark Porrell, um for linda vulcan who's excellent just a really strong cast really well done, really well shot. The music by Riz Ortolani is completely unmatched by anyone. There is a scene in this movie where the diegetic music is, music is used diegetically. It's a wonderful scene. It, it encompasses everything that I feel like would be an argument for making Fulci and Artur with his films and his themes and his messages and the way it's constructed is brilliant you know I I feel like it's been ripped off numerous times just the way it's done Um, the sad music um, along with the brutal imagery um, you know Riz Ortolani the composer would go on to do that stuff in Ruggiero Diodato's films and and to just as just as strong as a degree here so I mean it's just a wonderful film and it just has a great mystery behind it and it points out hypocrisy and it's just sleazy and it just does the stuff that a lot of people wouldn't do it's smart 
it, it is, you know, a damnation of the Catholic Church and superstition, but also it understands what it's talking about without, you know, sounding like an idiot and feeling legitimate at the same time. It's a beautiful film. It's one of his best films. I would say it's his finest film. Maybe not my personal favorite, but I'd have a hard time telling you guys that the, the Beyond or Zombie are better. Because I don't think they are. I just might like them better just because my own style. But Don't Torture a Duckling is truly a masterpiece. It's a masterwork from a ma- my second favorite horror director of all time. And I, I think it's wonderful. Uh, the commentary on here is Troy Haworth. It's one of his favorite films too. He talks a lot about it. Does a great job. And so I won't get into rehash everything else that's on here. Because I've talked about this movie a few times now. But I just wanted to kind of... Just talk a little bit about Don't Torture a Duckling and its brilliance. So, yeah, check it out if you've not seen it. If you if you like Fulci's gore films, this does have a lot of the brutality. It's very unpleasant, um, you know, but you can see little snippets of his future films in here, too, and his past films. And just this was like the accumulation of all the greatness that he ever had. And to me, just everything fell into the right spot. So I love it. Um, a movie about a child murderer. So very touchy stuff. Also, you know, great, great film. Check it out. The Blu-ray looks pretty solid as well, too. Okay, continuing on the Italian Horror Month uh, bus here. We're doing Umberto Lenzi coming up next week. My pick, and I, I chose three I hadn't seen. The first one up is Ghost House from 1988. Yes, I've never seen Ghost House. I know, right? What are you thinking? Dave, how could you not see Ghost House? How could you not watch a classic Film Mirage produced movie? You know, Film Mirage was the company produced by Joe D'Amato in like the late 80s, early 90s. You had Stage Fright by Michele Suave, which is clearly the best Film Mirage movie. I believe Troll 2 was a Film Mirage. Uh, Frankenstein 2000, Crawlers, a.k.a. Contamination 7, a.k.a. Troll 3. So, um, Door in the Silence, the Fulci film, all these movies. Uh, Deep Blood were all these film mirage movies. Most of them are cheap and cheesy and weird, and a lot of them are filmed in the States, you know, which is really cringy dialogue. Ghost House is no different. Ghost House is pretty funny, entertaining. Poltergeist ripoff. It's absolutely ridiculous to the point where, you know, they have the the weird doll um, from Poltergeist kind of style in here, floating toys in a room. The plot is absurd. So I think, like, something tragic and crazy happened in this house. There's a big exposition dump later on what exactly happened. Donald O'Brien's here is this kind of drunk handyman. I feel like he is competing with Gordon Mitchell from last week's film Blood Delirium. Like, the same year, like, both of them we're, like, we're gonna go out for two drunk handymen here. Who's gonna be the better drunk handyman? That's just kind of like a, a stereotypical character. Essentially, this guy picks up this weird frequency on a ham radio. I think they're on vacation, whatever the hell they're doing. They drive to the location trying to find it through the state. I don't know how the fuck that works, but they end up getting to this abandoned house. They think it's abandoned. They run into some other people, and it's spitting out this weird frequency. It turns out the place is haunted. It's weird. Um, strange things start going on. People start getting killed with absurd things like fan blades and and whatnot. There's heads and washers. There's an evil-spirited little girl. There's a backdrop of a mortician who used to steal shit, I think. Oh, well. Ghost House is completely bonkers. It's completely silly. It's completely nonsensical. You'll recognize music cues from all the other Film Mirage movies. Probably used a little better in some of them. Definitely not used as well as uh, this one, a lot of them. So, you know, Ghost House sits above, you know, a lot of the other Film Mirage movies. Not gonna lie. I'd say it's better than Troll 2. I'd say it's better than Door in the Silence. It's not nearly as good as fucking Stage Fright, but I don't think any Film Mirage title has been. You know, it's probably on the level of something like Frankenstein 2000 with, uh, you know, Donald O'Brien, which I think I watched for 91 or 94 or 91. So, so you know what? I enjoyed this. Uh, it's fun. It's cheesy. It's a poltergeist ripoff. Lindsay's pretty solid director, but, you know, when the money ran low, he gave you what he could. Is, is Hitcher in the Dark a film Mirage too? I believe it probably is. Um, but I do love the idea that Joe Diamato's production company is producing movies for Fulci and Lindsay and probably a slew of other guys like Bava in here. I don't remember 
whatever, Baba made a film Mirage movie or not, by Lombardo, I mean. And, of course, himself, and given Michele Suave's first directorial thing. So that's very cool. If you're a fan of Ghost House, the picture quality looked pretty decent. You know, it has subtitles. That's nice. So, yeah, it is what it is. Okay, the Patreon pick. I can't remember, is it David Scott or David Luton who picked this one? He picked The 400 Blows um, by, is it, it's a Truffaut? I can't remember. I'm stupid when it comes to a lot of French classic cinema. This is 1959. It's on the Criterion channel. It's a Criterion release. And it's, an, it's 100 minutes long. So I did not really know what to expect. I knew The 400 Blows was a very popular title. It was a very, you know, um, well-respected title. So, so I started it, and right off the bat, you know, it's really well shot. It's uh, kind of, you know... It's just, uh, it, it kind of sucks you in right away. And I didn't really know exactly what it was about or what the point of the film was going to be. I did not hear anybody talk about this movie. After all the things that, you know, I hear about podcasts and everything, I never heard anyone kind of dive into this in depth or heard any special features on it. So, like, I'm watching this, and I'm watching this young kid's life, and I'm watching him kind of descend into getting in trouble and all this kind of thing. And you notice that all the adults around him are just ungodly cruel. From his, from his schoolmaster to his parents to the people he ends up around at the very end. And it, it's just kind of a weird situation. Like, seeing this, I can see that it's kind of just saying, you know, sometimes kids that commit crimes or do bad things aren't all bad. You know, a lot of them are blamed on their surroundings and everything like that. So I think that in that aspect, you know, it was probably a very important film. And I do see that, you know. There's a point where this poor kid is put in this prison cell with a criminal and prostitutes while they're smoking and he's just kind of staring out and stuff. And it does, it does, I wouldn't say it lingers because although some of the shots are long, they're well done and they don't really wear out their welcomes. And by holding the shots like that, you know, him staring out of the back of the, the police caravan or him staring out of the bars kind of gets its point across. It kind of burns the image in your head. Um, the end of the film is is also, I wouldn't say surrealistic, um, maybe, maybe just broad. I, I don't know. It, it's Visually, it's very beautiful. I wouldn't say surrealistic, but it leaves it open. And, you know, it reminds me of kind of like the French cool hand Luke. If that makes any sense, you know, what I, I don't know if that makes any sense to me but just the ideal in it for me um but yeah it's just well done entertaining like it's a slice of life movie in a lot of the ways you know the dialogue is strong the characters are strong um and just the idea of it it's just like um in a lot of ways, it's just depressing to look at, but it's also very captivating. That's probably the way it's shot. It's probably the way it's written. It's just very intriguing. The parents in here are awful. Like, they just don't really seem to care. And you get into the psychology, what happened to the kid, and all this kind of stuff a little bit. And st- it's just an entertaining film. I, I wish I had more to say about it. I wish that I probably, you know, should have watched special features on it and context and everything like that. But this is my first experience with this director. And I have nothing but positive things to say. It's just, like I said, well shot. And lesser directors or lesser writers would have made this very boring. But it's, it doesn't. It holds your attention completely just through the dialogue and not knowing exactly where it's going to go and how it's going to end. But that's the 400 blows. I'm glad I watched this finally. And it just make, basically making me a smarter person or hopefully I think it's making me a smarter person. I sure hope so. Hey, guys, we're here for another uh, installment of universal horror i don't know why i question installment but uh this one's one of the heavy hitters i think most people consider this kind of the beginning of the universal horror films and this is 1931's dracula directed by todd browning who would go on to do um freaks which is a classic and he kind of got uh blacklisted after freaks but he did uh some other silent films as well before this i think he did mark of the vampire with bella go see later on so yeah, uh, the stars Bela Lugosi. Everybody knows that. Dwight Fry, who else pops up in here? The guy who plays Van Helsing's in some other films. So yeah, this is based off the uh, Bram Stoker novel. 
And uh, there was only one before it, which was kind of based off the Bram Stoker novel, if you're looking at Nosferatu. But this is the first faithful adaptation. So, yeah, it's a story of Dracula. If anybody's not read the book or seen this movie, it's, it's pretty classic. It's been made a million freaking times. Uh, yeah, so it's relatively short at 74 minutes. It's the first talkie for Universal Horror Films. It's the first talk one with, uh, with talk one, but it's the first one with dialogue. Yes. And, you know, you can kind of see the transition a little bit. It's a little quiet in places. That's perfectly fine. Uh, Bale Lugosi's amazing in it. He, he's fantastic. I think that most people think he is one of the top two, if not the best Dracula of all time. Dwight Fry's Renfield is fantastic. Uh, Van Helsing is fantastic. Those three, I think, are the shining points of the film, besides the thick atmosphere and everything like that. So when I originally saw this, I saw this as a kid a few times and then as an adult. And I always felt as like, oh, Dracula's a little, a little boring. It's not as good as Frankenstein or, you know, Creature or the Wolfman. Watching it this time, it just really hit. Maybe it's because I had read, seen so many adaptations of Dracula and the way they handle it from Jess Franco's to Hammer's to, you know, uh, the uh, Bram Stoker's uh, from the 90s. There's so many different adaptations. And you know what? This one is shorter. It's to the point. It hits a lot of the beats. It has great dialogue, super memorable lines by Bela Lugosi and Van Helsing. Their back and forth is fucking phenomenal. And what'd you think of Dracula, 1931, Jeremy? Did you ever watch the stoker dracula yeah all the way okay no, yeah i've seen it as a kid i've seen it as a kid and i i tried to watch it a couple <laughs> times as an adult and i never really could get into it i need i owe it a revisit right i i would like to yeah. rewatch the so the stoker but uh but going back to 31 dracula bella lugosi um i i thought it was fantastic again maybe it's just because we just watched you know about a month and a half worth of silent film so it's like okay this is refreshing to watch um you know, i don't typically watch many movies outside of what we do for the weekly reviews yeah. so it's like oh people speak in movies what 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 is this what is this new technology going on um it's you know they, they of course changed things about the dracula story um all for shortening it which i appreciated yeah because the thing about like the novel dracula is that um i think it's a fantastic story i i hate reading it um just the way a that great story written poorly. Yeah, I would say the the way that the book is that. presented because it's not presented like a novel. It's presented as like a series of different dialogue or like diary, diary entries, entries by multiple characters that sometimes come in the middle of the book for the first entry. Like right, like right. Bram Stoker wrote himself in a corner when Van Helsing has his diary. When Van Helsing has his diary, you get like the newspaper <laughs> clipping about like the ship scene. The ship log is by the far ship log. one of the greats. The um, opening and the ship log are, are unmatched <coughs> in quality. For that book, mm-hmm. I think they're they're amazing, but there's some downtime. There's a lot of padding, there's a lot right. of rep- repetition in the the novel. And I'm not trying to badmouth it. It's one of the most important horror novels of all time. Yeah, I mean it's a great story. Um, you know, and so whenever you're watching one of the movies, they they, they always change things. They combine characters, omit characters. Um, you know, like so so like in this one, in this 31 version, um, they take Doctor Seward and they make him the father of Mia. Um, Mina. Is it Mina? Yeah, it's, it's Mina. Mina. It's Mina. Mina. It's yeah, Mina yeah. Harker. Um, yeah, Mina Harker. Um, who who is engaged to uh, Harker? What's his name? Jonathan. Jonathan Harker. Jonathan Harker. Um, 
you know, so some of changes like that, instead of Jonathan Harker being like the introduction of the book, it starts with Renfield. Which he's the um is perfect. Yes, how it, it works. Because Renfield is, is a far more significant character in this movie than he is in the book. In and the book he's just a mental patient. And this it's like, no, I've had this direct Contact I'm the one that, with Dracula, which right, drove I'm me the, mad. It drove me mad. I'm the one that brought him over to the States, and I became his familiar. It's or, an improvement on the story. It is. It's it an is. improvement. And Dwight Fry is amazing. And everybody remembers the laugh that he does. It's a very, his, his very laugh, memorable his laugh. His voice, um, his, the rats. His appearance. The, yes. Uh, and, and I like that they embrace the, you know, blood is the life that Dracula tells him. And that line haunts him. He yes. tells him one line and it fucking haunts the white fry the whole movie. The spiders and I right. love that the night guard is like go go about rats. Oh, he, he, you know he's like the comedic character, um, the the, the night guard. Um, he's, and, he's wonderful and he, he's like a gem every time he's on scene. Um, yeah, Renfield is I think I I almost want to say that he's like a main character. Like he he, he's the one that goes through like <laughs> he's an exposition dumps too. Yeah, he, he he and he goes through the whole change. He he actually gets a complete arc while all the other characters just kind of like seem to be like Harker's kind of wasted. Their role. Seward's fine. Harker's wasted. Um, ben Helsing's fantastic as he always is. So, so is Dracula. Yeah, Ben Nina Hels- and Lucy are both used well. Um, Lucy, you know, she she does I think get wasted to at a point. Yes, but it, I I'm surprised that they actually went forth and had kids be killed in this. Like oh the, yeah, like the novel. I didn't right. expect that. Um, the problem is, I think, with Lucy is that, like, ultimately you don't see what happens of her. I, I think they, one of the characters says that, like, they, they set up, like, oh, we're going to go take care of the Lucy problem. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that's never really explained like it is in, in the book or in some of the other adaptations. Um, the, you know, Mina and Lucy are, you know, different sides of the same yeah. coin. Mina is, like, the traditional woman. Lucy's, like, like the new woman. Um... And when you read the book, it's like, oh, Lucy's flirtatious and, you know, like, like, like a feminist. And Mina is like the, like, like, like the feminine treasure that needs to be protected. And, you know, of course, everybody in the book from, you know, Jonathan Harker to Helsing to Quincy, it's all like, we have to protect Mina. Quincy and the Prince aren't in this, um, but in fact, they're, they're kind of mixed in. I would even say Van Helsing is probably a little bit Quincy in here. Because he's, he's the more aggressive one towards the Dracula situation. Right. His glasses are so fucking awesome. Like Van Helsing looks amazing in this. From like like the 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 way that he talks, like like the sound of the actor's voice, his, his aesthetics. Um, he and uh, Lagosi have just like like the best chemistry I've I, seen in a I very love, long time. I love when Lagosi's figured out, and he's just like, well. It is what it is. He doesn't right. try to deny it. He's like, all right, well, you notice I'm very sensitive to reflections. He just leaves. And he just, and then they're like, he's gone. He turned into a, you see that big wolf? It's right. Just, they tell you things and, it, you know, you think that's like a cheap cop out, but it works. It, it works. really works. Um, it works. Um, Lugosi has like five or six such memorable lines, some of which are from the book. Like, the blood is life, children of the night. And I, I like this one. Yeah, yeah, because they do give Lugosi a lot of the lines from Dracula in the novel, but, um, when you're reading the novel, like Dracula's like scarcely in it, but in this movie, it's like he's like like the the neighbor to uh to Doctor Seward, and um so so he's like stopping in and like like he has a lot of scenes with everybody involved, like he's a, like a central character versus 
being more like a plot device in, in the actual story. So I, I do appreciate that. And seeing the history of, you know, horror films, just watching Bela Lugosi walk around outside looking mm. like Jack the Ripper with his ta- top yes. hat after he murders a woman and stuff. It's just like perfect. Like, and, and the one moment that's brilliant is when he's on the balcony, of course, and he says, you know, oh, to be dead. Yes. Or, that, that's not on the balcony, but he's like, to be dead. They're in the theater, the balcony. Yeah, yeah, the he theater. is there yeah. on the balcony. He says, to be dead would truly, and he goes into this, it would be something else. There's far worse fates than death. And you're just like, dude, I know that some people are like, oh, that movie's dated. It doesn't work in a lot of aspects. But no film is perfect. No. And you have to take warts and all. And the, the important scenes and the memorable scenes in this movie match up with anything else you could throw at it. As oh, far yeah. as classic cinema, like black and white cinema, for sure. I, I think it's a masterpiece. Everybody knows Dracula is a masterpiece. I, I, I it think... was much better than I remembered. I, I, I thought it would be coming in at a three and a half. I'm not. I'm right. not coming in much fucking higher. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I think that this was just an absolute treat. Um, I, I, I adored it. The set um, designs, the stairs. The, the set designs, the stairs. Um, there is... The wide shots. Like, a lack of music in this and, like, sound effects, which, you know, I, I guess maybe they're... Because it almost feels like a stage play at points, um, which makes sense. You know, you know, it makes sense. Um, you, you know, so so it is like a kind of quiet movie, especially if there's no dialogue yeah. going on. Um, seeing Dracula in the theater, you know, it just like makes me want all that much more. Um, Phantom versus Phantom Dracula. Dracula. We wanted that movie. Yes. What um, do we have a name for it? Phantom Knights or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> we had a good name for it. I'm sure it's in the the backlog somewhere. Somewhere, but um. Yeah, no, I just thought it was, like, a fantastic, like, honest to God, a five-star movie. Especially, five out of five for me, too. Right, especially for a Dracula movie. You know, I'm always wishy on the Dracula movies. But this one, you know, it, like I said, it's short, it's sweet. All the stuff's there. It's just, like, a nice, condensed, like... 74-minute version of the book. It's, right. I, I think if you read the book, I think this is the version just to watch because they condense it up. They condense it up. It's um, easier to follow... You, you know, know what a great project would be to take mm-hmm. all like you know how they did like make your own Dracula movie take like bits and pieces from every and do scenes because the opening like of the train station scene with uh for Count Je- uh, Jess Franco's Dracula was like dead on it's exactly mm-hmm. like the book so you're like take that little snippet there then like incorporate this scene from this one and have the hammer it'd be so cool to do that to be honest make your Dracula movie from all the Draculas and make you know what I mean I think it's entirely possible I, I think I every think so movie. Too. Has a great moment that's the best from the best adaptation from the book. Right. There's a 79 Dracula, too, and then there's a Dan Curtis Dracula. There's so many good Draculas. Right. It's just, you know, when you take the Dracula book as a whole and try to make it a movie, I, I think that it would eventually become so stale. Yeah. Um, so, so here's what I want to ask. I know this is an additional question. Cast a Dracula movie. Take all the pre-established or pre-characters like... The Dracula, the Renfield, the Van Helsing, the Harkers, or whoever from all the different Dracula adaptations and cast the main cast of Dracula. So you have Dracula, Renfield, Van Helsing, Harker, Seward, Lucy, Nina, Quincy, and the Prince. So cast all them from all the adaptations of Dracula you've seen. Mm-hmm. Not randomly throwing people in there that you want to see because that's we want to see like I want Herbert Lom as Van Helsing, but I want Bella Lugosi as Dracula, and I mm-hmm. want, you know, uh, fucking who, who's a Claus Kinski is Renfield right. you know what I mean because these characters have all played that that would be very cool to do that I'm just mm-hmm. curious if, if anybody has the time to do that alright yeah I give it 5 out of 5 I think it's perfect I'm gonna read from John Stanley's Creature Features um, maybe we're just like starved for fucking dialogue I think that might have been it um, Dracula 1931 4 out of 5 
Bell Lugosi's like, performance is the saving grace of this universal milestone movie, establishing the vampire formula for all time. Todd Browning's direction is strangely static, and the Garrett Ford Dudley Murphy adaptation from the Hamilton Dean um, John Balderson play, in turn from Bram Stoker's novel, is as stuffy as the drawing room in which too much of the action is set. Only the early Transylvania sequences, when Renfield, Dwight Fry, coaches across the eerie moor and arrives at the gothic Dracula castle, convey the atmosphere the rest of the film screams for. It is an affected stage-style acting of Lugosi, the malignant evil he suggests, and the hypnotic spell he holds over females that kept keeps one a wrap. The supporting cast becomes mirrored in the stilted style of the period Edward Van Sloan portrays the Van Helsing character, Helen Chandler, one of Dracula's victims, makeup by Jack Pierce, who also did Carlos Frankenstein Monster, um, cinematography by Carl Freud. Jack Pierce did all the fucking makeup on the wall. Everybody. Um, but <coughs> I think the lighting on his eyes is great when he does the hypnotic thing. Very, yes. neat, very nice touch. Um, I disagree with him, but hey, who gives a shit what I think? This is uh, James O'Neill, Terror on Tape. There you go, right there. Yeah, I wanted to see something. Oh, you're going to. Is Belagosi's not listed there? Oh, they had a one from Michael Ripper. They did have a Michael Ripper. That's so bomb. That bombs me out. They had a Michael Ripper in the. Uh, we used to read him for the hammer. Yeah. We didn't know they had Michael Ripper. They have Dwight Fry that we yeah, did Dwight read. Dwight Fry. I was thinking if they yeah. had one for Bella Lagosi. Not he probably but... somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll read Dwight Fry, though. Yeah, so Dracula. Um, do, 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 three and a half out of four. Sorry. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Three and a half out of four. That's more fair. See, when, when, when there's so many Dracula movies, the entire page is just Dracula, so I had to find which year. I think that's anything. a Spanish Dracula. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. We'll do that next be. week. That's what we're doing Spanish Dracula next week next from week. Universal. Okay. I've never seen it. I'm excited. So, so yeah, three and a half out of four. The original horror classic, Lugosi, as a vampire count, who leads his crumbling Transylvanian abode for the fresh, warm blood of London. A little more than a photograph stage play in spots, but always worth seeing for Bella's magical performance. His stiffness and unfamiliarity with the English language actually add to the aura of the role. Find support from Chandler, Van Sloan, and particularly Fry, Rats, Rats, Carl Freund's misty photography, and plenty of classically quotable lines. And then it has the sequels, Dracula's Daughter, Son of Dracula, House of Dracula, etc. Remade more times than I have space to mention. And then reading at Dwight Fry. Um, what year did he born? What year did he die? 1899 to 1943. 44 years old for um, Dwight Fry. So he is Renfield. So this talented, neurotic-looking character actor was one of the great horror-supporting performers of the 30s. Best known for his outstanding Renfield and Dracula and his bumbling hunchback in Frankenstein, he died in obscurity while doing factory war work. Oh, my God. Um, so list his movies, Dracula of 31, Frankenstein of 31... The Vampire Bat of 33, Strange Adventure 33, Invisible Man 33, Bride of Frankenstein 35, The Crime of Dr. Krepsey 35, The Ghost of Frankenstein in 42, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman of 43, and Dead Man Walk at 43. Well, he died, um, unfortunately. What a fucked up... With you the, know, all these classic horror actors died of terrible death. Yeah, they? and you know, he, like, he becomes like the archetypical... Like like his voice is memorable. I mean I mean they they use his his sound, I, I think, and his looks, you know, to portray various characters in history. Igor's Peter Renfield. Loyal. Peter Lorry and Peter Lorry are every Igor. They're right. every Renfield vo- character type look At, in right. all the animated things you've seen. All the animated two. things. Anytime that Or a you, mixture of both. Right. Anytime that you need like the Weasley side guy to the villain, you're gonna get Laurie or Fry and um 
and you know, and I, I think that's that's cool. I I, I prefer Laurie myself. Um, Wait till I, I you just... get to Igor. I think it's Ghost of Frankenstein or Son of Frankenstein. Ghost, I think it's one of the Frankenstein's. I think it's Ghost. Wait till you get to Igor, played by Bela Lugosi. By Bela Lugosi. Yes, okay. he is by right. far one of the most memorable characters of all time in Universal. The strength of ten men. You know, and then like uh, Dracula, um, in this movie, he wears the little pendant, and any time you buy a little. A little spirit Halloween vampire makeup kit, you know, it always comes with that little pendant. You Do you know, know he it's... only played Dracula in the Universal films twice. I mean, how this many, how many uh, Draculas are there? There's a bunch. I mean, there's really? a house. I mean, Dracula pops up in a bunch of them. He's, a, I think, he's in House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, fucking. So he's in a lot of them. I mean, he plays him in Abbott Costello, Meet Frankenstein, and so Lon Chaney that? Jr. plays the Wolfman in it too. So it's awesome. Unfortunately, Boris Karloff's not Frankenstein. I think it's Glenn Strange. But okay. Bell Lugosi went on to play Frankenstein, too. Oh, he the did? The monster. Yeah, he okay. played the monster. Interesting. So, interesting. Very strange. Uh, yeah, so anyways, like, uh, I, I, was, I was very happy with it. I'm looking forward to Spanish Dracula. Then we think we'd go murder. Then I think it's like Frankenstein after that. So, I'm, like, I really wish we would have just dove right into the, just the horror stuff. But it, this is nice to have yeah, these it was treats nice. like It this. was nice to see Lon Chaney. Um, that stuff we should have kept. We should have just kept the two Lon right. Chaneys and then dove into Dracula. But, hey, I want to be kind of a completist on this. Right. You know, I I, I, mean, I think it's important to watch. I mean, yeah, some of them were really shaky and kind of thriller yeah and it did take a while to get there but um you know like they were fun like man who laughs was a little bit boring but i loved like like the later ones and i love learning about man who laughs so i do right. not regret watching it at all and, very... and the actor that played him um and he was Carl conrad veit or veit yeah i I, great. I thought that he was fantastic so i'm glad that we got the exposure well, to he's in him. a couple other movies too so yeah, yeah. I, I was very happy with dracula obviously mm-hmm. and i hadn't seen it in a long time uh bella grossi was great so now next week we do Spanish Dracula. Yeah. So then we'll see how they compare. Because he said that some people prefer some Spanish. Some people say that they would take the Spanish Dracula movie and just throw Bela Lugosi in it. And they mm-hmm. would that would be their preferred version. So yeah, so I'm curious to see what changes there are. If it's, you know, shot for shot, the script. Like, I'm, I'm curious to see the what the differences better, are. But I don't know. Yeah, we'll find out. We'll find out. Okay, we have a couple questions and comments. Not too much. Zach Nolan. Rob Zombie was quoted in the early 90s interviews that movies are more interesting and real to him than the real people outside his front door. I certainly feel the same way. I wonder if that resonates with you as well. Thanks for posting even when you're sick. I just got over the flu myself. It ruined most of my October. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, I do have a, I do have that mo- kind of feeling. Sometimes I can't relate to real human beings unless I compare it to cinema. And, and cinema I'll watch and I'll say, well, it's like this or it reminds me of this. And I get very emotional if I'm talking about something in a film. You know, if that makes any sense to anyone and it resonates with me in a certain way or somebody else, I can become very emotional. So I I know what you're feeling. I know exactly what you're feeling. Um, Maybe not exactly. Nobody truly does know exactly what anyone else is feeling. But Movie Junkie Reviews, the Ropod versus the Aztec Mummy is a quality movie. I'm glad you enjoy it. I find it okay. Um, Kentucky, Kentuckinator, liked for referencing Wizard of Gore in your last performance review. Get well, Mr. Barker. Thank you. Even though I don't love Herschel Gordon-Lewis, I will reference him for sure because you got to have that whore knowledge and you got to respect them, even if you don't love everything they've done, especially when they do something important. Uh, what the flick? Uh, somehow I always quote, I killed it, Gilbert, from What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Hope you get well soon. Thank you. And Ken Coakley, I posted something last week about the black phone that got deleted somehow. I knew it was the right episode because I remember a viewer saying at close range was a favorite. Anyway, I wasn't always a huge fan of Ethan Hawke because he made those Before Sunrise movies as well as Reality Bites. Um, 
Okay. First, I liked Daybreakers, even though Willem Dafoe carried it like he does in a lot of his film movies. Then I blind bought The Purge while I was vacationing in Texas and liked it a lot. In 2018, he was at my local cinema to show his directorial debut called Blaze, which is a biopic about the outlaw country singer Blaze Foley. Hawk had a cameo as a radio DJ, but by but Charlie Sexton, who played Towns um, Towns Van Sant, looked so much like Hawk, I thought it was him. I didn't really expect much, even though I love Outlaw Country, but I loved it and became my favorite film of 2018. But The Black Phone, while it had some flaws, was entertaining and very intense while waiting for the kid to escape. The mask Hawk wears looks pretty similar to the mask in Demons. No, I was impr- I was happy with Black Phone, and I didn't expect to be because I'm not a huge Scott Derrickson fan. Just you know, his films just don't speak to me. Black Phone, I really enjoyed. Ethan Hawke as an actor that you know he's all his movies he does aren't always great, but you know I feel like he always takes chances, and you gotta love an actor that takes chances when you've watched First Reform by Paul Schrader, or even taking a chance on The Purge, which was a low budget movie he took stake in and it paid off for him. But uh, at Training Day, I mean Ethan Hawke is a solid actor. You know, not everything he does is gold, but you know he's well willing to take a chance to hit gold sometimes which a lot of people aren't anymore so you got to respect ethan hawk for that and he's good in black phone um as far as the question of the week i'm going to say what's your favorite universal horror film because we're in the universal horror films and we did dracula this week so now we're really into it what is your favorite universal horror film and i mean classic like before psycho you know that 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 run of universal horror films if it can be considered the stuff we're going to be covering not you know the thing i'm talking about classic universal horror films from that era um you know so you know the classic universal monsters anyways uh let's hop into this update okay first up uh is night of the living dead you know it's november how am i not going to get the 4k of one of my all-time favorite horror films ever made that's right i had the blu-ray but i needed the 4k george a romero's 1968 classic night of the living dead one of the best of all time then we have Audrey Rose from Arrow Video. This is a good price on Amazon, so I picked it up. You know, I've never seen Audrey Rose. I wanted to grab this, so yeah, why not? It has some new special features, I believe, on there. This was released by Twilight Time. That is out of print, if I'm not mistaken. Um, then, of course, we have the next Vestron release, Earth Girls Are Easy. This is number 30, 27. And, you know, Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, Jim Carrey, Damon Wayans. You know, I don't know if I ever loved this film, to be really honest. I just saw parts of it on TV. But I've been collecting these uh, Vestron releases. Ooh, it's got a scuff on the side. I would care, but I don't care. It's slipcover, you know, it's a little scuffed up. I'm not selling it. Uh, but, yeah, so I guess I'll revisit this one eventually down the line. That's going to be like a minute here. And last up is Men uh, by the director of Ex Machina, which I don't love, and Annihilation, which I need to see. But this is a 2022 movie, and I'm planning on watching it. For the price, was like $6 on Amazon, so probably the cost of a rental. So yeah, I'm why not? A24. Probably a solid film. I hear mixed things. Mostly good, though. So yeah, Men. Anyways, we're going to hop back to that video. Okay, guys. Thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Mm.